1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful day it's been to worship our Lord Jesus Christ. And what a great reminder at the table this evening, Philip, for the hope that we have because of what Jesus has done for us. Truly blessed to be able to gather together to think about Jesus, to sing these songs that praise him, that remind us of our trust and our faith in him. As we think about our lives as Christians, there's a point that is kind of a scary point, but something that we often need to be reminded of. And it's the fact that the devil is after each one of us. In 1 Peter chapter 5, and verse number 8, Peter says, Be sober. Be vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's after each one of us. He's not only after each one of us, he already knows us. You know, I think of Job chapter 1 and 2, when the devil comes before the Lord, and the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? The devil already knew who Job was. He talks about, you know, you've made a hedge around Job. Job wouldn't fall. He didn't think. The devil knew who Job was. And the devil knows who each one of us is as well. And the, the sad reality is, as we think about Jesus, as we think of our home in heaven, we think about the fact that the devil is after us, we need to understand that each one of us will sin. We will sin and we will fall short of the glory of God. We're assured of that. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, it simply says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, it says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. To say that we have no sin is a dangerous thing. It's something that's deceptive towards ourselves. And if that statement were true, if we could truly say that we have no sin, that would make God a liar. And we know God's not a liar. Now, that's not to say we don't have any choice in the matter. We do have choice. We choose to sin. We are not forced to sin. But the rea reality is, is that because of our human desire and our inability to choose to be perfect at all times, we will make a choice to sin and fall short of the glory of God. We need to understand that we will do that, and if we continue in that sin, we cannot be pleasing to God. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 26 says, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. That's a pretty scary thing. That's what we have to look forward to when we continue to willfully sin. Romans chapter 6, Paul writing here says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? A Christian, someone who's been reborn, who, who has come to Jesus on his terms, they have no place, there's no place in their life for sin. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount tells the people, says no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. 
You know, we can make a lot of different points about that. Is he talking specifically about money or, or whatnot? But anything that takes our attention away from God, we cannot serve both of those things. To be pleasing to God, our entire life means to be devoted to him. There's no room for sin in that life. But as we think about these things, I will sin, I will fall short of the glory of God. The devil's after me, he knows me, I can't continue in my sin. We need to understand that God's desire for me is for me to repent, to change my life, to come to him fully and completely devoting myself to him. We'll come back to this point later at the end of the lesson, but in 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not, wi- not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord's desire is for us to repent. So the question that I think of when I think of this is, what should my repentance look like? What is real and true repentance? There's so many things that could be said about this. I'm going to look at a very specific story tonight, and it's going to be a study of Psalm 51. That's where we're going tonight. If you want to turn your Bibles to Psalm 51, that's where the bulk of our study is going to be tonight. If you'll go ahead and mark that, though. We want to get a little bit of the historical context of what's going on here. So turn to Psalm 51, and also turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We'll be in both those places. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. As you're turning there, I just want to take a quick minute and say thank you for the opportunity to get to stand before you this evening and to present a message from the Word of God. It is a blessing to get to study the Word of God and to present the things that I find important to you. I hope that something that I say is meaningful to you and at the very least know that this study has been important and helpful to me. If you're visiting with us, we thank you for being here. We invite you back at any time that you're able. If you have any questions about anything that I say or anything that this congregation here practices, first of all, know that we're trying to be the church of the New Testament, and we welcome whatever questions that you might have. But as we get into Psalm 51, let's get a little bit of the historical context. My Bible suggests that this is a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. After he committed this sin with Bathsheba, that's when we have this psalm recorded. So I'm going to go back and and just remind ourselves of some of the facts of of this story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And it's really chapter 11 and chapter 12 here. We see this sin in the first five verses of 2 Samuel chapter 11. You see in verse 1 that the time of year that's being talked about here is the time when, in spring, at the time when kings go out to battle. And we see David didn't go out to battle. He was the king, but he didn't go out to battle with the people. He stayed back and remained in Jerusalem. And we know the story. We know what happens. We know that he stays in Jerusalem. And one night he goes up on the rooftop of the palace and he looks out and he sees a woman bathing. And instead of turning away and looking away, going back inside and disregarding that and forgetting that he ever saw it, he inquires about her. Who is she? And he has her brought to him. And he lies with her in an adulterous relationship. And as a result of that relationship, a child is conceived. Now, obviously, this is a shameful thing. This is something that that for the people of Israel, this is deserving of death. 
The things that David is doing and that we're going to see him do through this chapter, these are things that, that according to the law of God, he deserved death. And so, so he's, he's with this woman, Bathsheba, and, and they, they, she gets pregnant with his kid. And it's a shameful thing. And it's something that he doesn't want anybody to know about. And so we see this cover-up. We see him bring Uriah home from battle. Bathsheba's husband. She bring, he brings him home. And he's like, you know, well, you know just go on home. Go, go to your wife. I, I guess with the hopes that, you know, if he, if he lays with his wife, and then she finds out, you know, then tells everybody that she's pregnant, nobody's going to have a question. It's Uriah's kid. The timeline would make sense. But Uriah wouldn't do that. He knew that he had a purpose. He knew where he needed to be. And he refused to go home and be with his wife. And when David hears about that, you know, it's really kind of catching up to him now. He's worried. People are going to find out. So he tells Uriah, well, well, don't go back just yet. Stay one more day. And David kind of wines and dines him, right? He gets him drunk. He gives him this feast and gets him drunk. It's like, now go home to your wife. Go be with her. But Uriah wouldn't. He wouldn't go home. And so we see, we see this progression. Well, go home. Now we get him drunk and tell him to go home. And now we see this massive escalation. And David writes this letter to be delivered to Joab, telling him to put Uriah in the heat of the battle. And when things get bad, have everybody retreat and let Uriah be killed. And that message delivered to Joab was delivered by the hand of Uriah. And Uriah goes and he hands it to Joab, and that's exactly what they do. Joab listens to the king. He, he sends them in this battle, and he has everybody retreat. Now, something that I never really thought about before. I thought about the fact, yes, Uriah is killed in this battle. But in verse 24, when the servant comes to tell David of what's happened, in verse number 24 at the end of it, it's not just Uriah that's killed. The servant tells David, it says, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. You know, I've thought about this story in the past. I've heard sermons on it. I've read it. But for some reason, I never thought about the fact that his sin, this cover-up, this plot to have Uriah killed costs other people their lives as well. You know, our sin has an effect on people that sometimes we aren't expecting, that we never know might be affected by that. But even at this point, even at this point, when, when David's told, some of your servants are dead, including Uriah, but more than just Uriah, some of them are dead, David's response in verse number 25 says, do not let this thing displease you. For the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. David's still not upset. He is himself ordered the death of these people, of his servants. He's cost them their lives. And he basically says, so what? His cover-up's worked. His plan has worked. Uriah is dead. And now we see at the end of the chapter that, that this caused Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. She grieved and mourned over him. But after her mourning was over, 
David takes her as his own wife. And now the cover-up, the perfect cover-up, right? Nobody will ever know. He's just married this widow. He's taken her in. It's a blessing. She's gone from the wife of a servant to the wife of a king. But we see at the end of the chapter, it said, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So we get to chapter 12. We see how far David has come at this point. And before we get to chapter 12, I want to remind us of where David came from. We were talking about this this morning in the Bible class in the back. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, we read of when Samuel anointed David as king. We see that he was anointed as king not because of what he looked like. He was a shepherd. He was not this strong, mighty, noble-looking man. But he was anointed king because of his heart. Because of who the Lord saw he was on the inside. This man who was anointed king is the same man who took Bathsheba to be his wife in this great sin. That's how far he's come. I was reminded of this quote I've heard before. Sin will take you farther than you ever thought you'd go. It'll keep you longer than you ever intended to stay. And it'll cost you more than you ever expected to pay. And all of that is very, very true. And we see that in this story here. I don't think David stayed home from going to battle, as we read in 2 Samuel chapter 11, intending to order the death of his own servants. Yet that's where he ended up. So Nathan the prophet comes to him in chapter 12, and in verses 1 through 4, he tells him this parable. We have a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man has just about everything he could imagine. And this poor man has one little lamb. And he has a close relationship with this one little lamb. It's something that that he has close to him as if it was his own child. And the rich man takes the lamb from the poor man to prepare a feast with it. Instead of picking from his vast flocks and herds, he takes from this man who had literally nothing but this lamb. And David's response to this parable is the just and righteous response. He says in verse number 5, it says that his anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David recognized this in this illustration. This man is deserving of death. And Nathan tells him, You are that man. He goes on in verse 7. It says, Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up your adversaries against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it in secret, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. And these great consequences of David's sin are going to be lasting consequences. Not only is he deserving of death, but they're consequences that are going to affect other people. 
And when he's told this, God has given him this kingdom. God has given him these great many blessings. And God said, I would have given you so much more had you only asked. And when he's confronted with this, when, when, when Nathan tells him, you are that man, David's response in verse 13 is simply, I have sinned against the Lord. It's at this point that he really recognizes how far he's come and where he's at. Now there's a little more to this story that we're going to get back to as we consider the 51st Psalm, but it's now that I'd like us to turn over to Psalm 51. This probably isn't exactly when David wrote this psalm in the story. Probably not. But it's at this point of recognition that I want us to go ahead and consider what's being said in the psalm. In Psalm 51, we'll begin in verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. We'll stop right there for just a moment. What David is doing here is he's appealing to the very nature of God. According to your loving kindness, according to your tender mercies, the same God who's pronounced these consequences upon David. The sword's never going to leave your house. Your neighbors will take your wives. These things are going to happen to you as a consequence of your sins. That same God, David is appealing to his nature here as a loving God, as a kind God, as a God of tender mercy. Because he knows that is the God who can forgive him. He's appealing to the very nature of God. That's how he starts this prayer. It's not about David anymore. It's not about him. He knows that he's too far gone, that there's nothing he could do to earn forgiveness. And so he's appealing to the Most High, the Almighty, and not just appealing to him, he's appealing to his nature. So according to your loving kindness, according to, your multi- according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. I look at these verses and what do I see? I see a recognition of the magnitude of David's sin. He's seeing just how great this sin really was. Obviously, it's affected a great many people. It's cost people their lives. It's changed the lives of other people for generations to come. But it's more than just that. He he recognizes this as a transgression, as something that goes against the law of God. But more than just the law of God, it goes against the very nature of God. He's appealing to the tender mercies and loving kindness of God. How are the things that David has done tender and mercy? How are they loving and kind? But they're in complete contradiction to that. They're transgressing that. They're transgressing the law of God. He refers to these things as iniquity. It's impure things. These grossly unfair things that he's referring to. He's saying, wash me thoroughly of that iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Sin is lawlessness. Cleanse me from where I've fallen short from the law. He's he's using all of these to describe his sin, right? Transgressions, iniquity, sin. So many different things. But it's not just against people who he has sinned. He says in verse 4, against you. Against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. 
We think back to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. When, when Nathan comes to him and is talking to him, he doesn't say, I have sinned against Bathsheba or against the children of Israel or against these servants whose lives have been taken. I haven't sinned. He didn't say, I have sinned against Uriah. All those things are true. Yes, he sinned against them. But he said, I have sinned against the Lord. How much greater is that? Our perfect God who has given us everything, he recognizes that is who he sinned against. It's not just a physical thing that's, that's, that he's done. It's not just something that's going to affect him physically. It is against the eternal God. And these things are weighty for him. We see in verse 3, For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Maybe, maybe that's reference to the consequences of his sin. The consequences of his sin are always before him. But maybe his sin is so weighty upon him, it's so heavy on his shoulders, that that's all he can think about. That's all that's on his mind. That's the point that he's at now. His sin is always before him. He can't think about anything but his sin. In verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Some people want to turn here and say, all right, see, he was born in sin. He has a complete sinful nature and want to point to things like the doctrine of original sin and things like that. That is not what David's talking about here. He is talking about his sin, the sin which he has chosen to commit. And it's so big. It's so crushing upon him. It's as if there was never a relationship with God. It's as if he was actually conceived in sin and he was evil his entire life. It's more of an exaggeration of where he's at because of how heavy that sin is upon him. He's finally recognized the magnitude of what he has done here. But as we go on, we see that he recognizes the desire of that, but we see he now has a desire for total and complete cleansing. We go back to verse 1. Blot out my transgressions. An idea of almost a surface level cleaning blot out my transgressions wash me thoroughly from my iniquities we're making a progression here wash me it's just a little more deep cleaning cleanse me from my sin it's even deeper than that cleanse me from my sin he goes on in verse 6 now behold you desire truth in the inward part and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. We see this progression. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities. Cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop. Completely purge him from the innermost part of who he is. There should be truth and wisdom from God in the innermost part of him. So purge him. Fill him with that truth. Fill him with that wisdom is what he's begging here. Take the sin completely away from me. As a side note, I, I looked up hyssop because that was something I'd never done before. Hyssop. What is hyssop? It's something that we read about a few times in the Old Testament. Not many times, but a few times. It is a plant, if you look it up online, this is what Google told me that it was. It's a plant used for medicinal purposes and, and Jewish purification rituals. And we see that in Leviticus chapter 14 and Numbers chapter 19. It's exactly what it's used for, purification and cleansing. But it's also used in Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12, hyssop was the tool that was used to apply the blood to the doorposts that the angel of death would pass over that house. It was hyssop that was used to do that. 
Now, what David's getting at with saying purge me with hyssop exactly, it's probably more on the side of the purification and the cleansing. But it is interesting to know how hyssop was used by the Israelites. It's what was used to apply the blood to the door. And I bring that up simply to just draw our minds to the fact that that David knew he was deserving of death. He knew that, that the angel of death should be after him. And maybe he is referencing the hyssop that was used to apply the blood to the doorpost. But at the very least, we know he has a desire for total and complete cleansing. Watch me and I'll be wider in the snow. He goes on in verse number 8, begging for a complete renewal. He says, make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Again, David knows that the presence of God is removed from him at this point. That the Lord has turned his face from David and David's begging for renewal where the Lord's face has not turned from him but rather turned from his iniquities. Verse 8, make me hear joy and gladness. Instead of having this sin on my mind, Lord, take that away from me and let me hear joy and gladness that this physical body which is so crushed by this sin, there in verse 8, that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Make me hear joy and gladness. In verse 9, hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquities, create in me a clean heart. Take this heart of mine and make it clean. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Make me strong. Make me to stand firm in you and who you are. Do not cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. The salvation that only God can provide. Restore to me the joy and the blessings of that salvation. He wants a complete renewal. Uphold me by your generous spirit. Nothing David could do could get him these things. It's only God that could allow these things to happen in his life. But he goes on. Do these things for me, God. Give me this complete renewal. And and then what? And then what? He goes on in verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. God, restore to me my salvation and I'm going to be your servant. I'm going to live a life that continuously in all things that I do offers praise and glory unto you. I'll be your servant. I will bring sinners to you. People will hear the worship that I offer. It's not something that's going to be done in private. It's going to be his entire life is a praise to God. Sinners will see that. And because of that, they'll come and and they will be converted. What a powerful thought that is. That we can have such a drastic transformation. That we can live a life where people see Christ alive in us because of the praise that we offer Him. What a powerful thing that is. He vows to live that sort of life now. God, that's what I'm going to do. And He keeps going here. In verse 16. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. There is nothing that David could offer God. There is no work that he could do, no sacrifice that he could give that could earn him forgiveness for the things in which he has done. And he's acknowledging that. And if there was, I would do it. I would go to whatever length there was to make myself right with you. But that's not what God desires. The physical things here on earth don't matter to God. Yes, we need to be good stewards of them and use them for His glory. But that's not what's important. It's not a sacrifice or anything that we do that earns us forgiveness. But it's a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. It's a change from the innermost part of who we are. This sin crushed David. And instead of sitting there and trying to put the pieces back together himself, he turns to God. He turns to God and offers God praise and glory and is begging for God to forgive him. There's nothing David could do and nothing we can do to earn forgiveness. And as he closes out this psalm, I really see that he's acknowledging the fact that only God's power can restore him. In verse 18, do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. What I hear him saying here is, do what's right for your kingdom. But he's begging to be a part of that kingdom. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Essentially, he's asking for restoration here. And he's saying, then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Uh, he's begging for a restoration to God that only God can provide. A restoration where God will now hear his worship again. Something that I think we need to notice as we wrap up this psalm is the fact that true repentance works. David was forgiven. I really believe David was forgiven. And I think we can go back to 2 Samuel to immediately what's said there and we can see that. Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Second Samuel chapter 12, we see in verse 13, this is David's initial recognition of his sin. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. At the beginning of verse 13. It says, And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. David recognized the sin. He acknowledged the sin. He turned to the Lord in true repentance. And Nathan tells him the Lord will... Remember your sin no more. You will not die. You know, and I think about this, and we think about how David's talked about in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 13, in verse number 22, yes, this is reference back to his anointing, but it says, and when he had removed him, him being Saul, the previous king, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. This man who fell so low is in the lineage of Jesus. But the point that I want us to take from that verse is that what David's remembered for and what the writer and the speaker here draws attention to is not David's sin and not how far he fell, 
but the fact that he was a man after God's own heart, that he really was a man who would do the full will of God. That's what he's remembered for in the first century church. He was truly forgiven. Now we need to understand that forgiveness and repentance, these things, are not an escape from all the consequences of our sin. David was given forgiveness. He, he did not have to die. That's what, that's what Nathan tells him. You shall not die. We understand that our sin earns us death. Right? Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. It's separation from God. That's what we earn because we sin. And we can only find forgiveness in God. And it's through the grace of God as it goes on. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can escape the eternal consequences of our sin, but the physical consequences sometimes are lasting. And we have to deal with those. We go on in 2 Samuel chapter 12. We see this in David's life. He says, you shall not die, but in verse 14, however, because... By this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who is born to you shall surely die. And as we go on in verse 15, then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And we continue reading, and we find out that the child ultimately dies. The consequences of sin here on this earth are lasting. We can be forgiven and escape eternal damnation from our sins. We, we can have that. But sometimes the physical consequences of our sin, we will have to face those things. But, but the reality is, is with sin, you know, we, we aren't defined necessarily by our sin or how far we fall to that sin, but rather how we come back from it. We see David here. This child's died. He's been forgiven from his sins, but he felt pretty low. He's been forgiven from them. And when this child dies, we read in verse number 20, it says, he's, he's now been told that the child is dead. It says, so David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. It wasn't about how far he fell. He fell pretty low, and he had to live with the consequences of how far he had fallen. But he came back. He came back to the Lord. And when facing those consequences, he turned and he worshipped. Repentance is about true transformation. Repentance is about change from the inside out. And we see this with David. In chapter 11, we see a man that, that has his own fleshly desires who gives in to those fleshly desires. Who, when he gives in to those desires, he looks to himself in his own strength to cover them up and to make it better. And ultimately, he keeps doing that over and over and he falls farther and farther. But we see in chapter 12 here, a man who's not looking to himself anymore. A man who's looking to God, who, as we've said time and time again, and facing these consequences, he turns and he worships. He's changed that type of change that we're supposed to have in our lives. We, we read in Romans chapter 12, 
verses 1 and 2. The word be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's a change that starts by changing the way we think. I think of James chapter 1. In James chapter 1, the, the last section of that chapter is about being a doer of the word and not just a hearer. It's about doing the things that God has told us to do, but it comes from a change in the way in which we think. In James chapter 1 and verse 27, the writer says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their troubles and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. That's in the context of being a doer of the word. But that comes down to something deeper than just the physical things which we're doing. It's a change in the way in which we're to think about things. You know, pure and undefiled religion to the Jewish people, and that's who's being written to here in the book of James. It's to Jews who converted to Christianity. Pure and undefiled religion to them was something that was an all-encompassing thing in their life. They followed the law of God in everything. Their social law was given by God. Their, 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 um, their religious law was. Everything was about pleasing God. And we see that recorded in the Old Testament. Now, we do see that they add their own traditions and, and they, do, they do a lot of things that, that are not in the law of God, but, but the idea of pure and undefiled religion to them was something that was all-encompassing in their life. So I think James is appealing to that in his writing. Pure and undefiled religion, a life which is fully encompassed in glorifying God, is three-directional. It's first and foremost directed towards God in obedience. It's before God and the Father. It's to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. In other words, it's outward towards others. It's in service to those who are in need. And when it's finally directed inward towards myself, it's not about pleasing myself. It's about keeping myself pure, keeping myself unspotted from the world. That's the transformation of mind from the inside out that I think we are to have as God's people. It's a true transformation. God's desire is for me to repent. It's what God wants. He wants me to change. He wants to see that change in my life. We read this already. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some count slightness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What a beautiful thought that is. So many people say, can God forgive me? God can't forgive me. I've done too much. I've gone too far away. Think about David. He fell pretty far, and God forgave him. Think about Saul, this man who was able at the end of his life to say, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Finally, there's a crown of life laid up for me in heaven, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. This is a man who said, I've, I've left those things behind. I reach forward to those things which are ahead. I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upper call in Christ Jesus our Lord. That man, but where did he come from? He was a persecutor of the church. He killed people. He threw people in prison. He was not a good man. And he was forgiven. You think about Peter. The Lord told Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Peter said, I would never do that. I would follow you to the cross. I would never do such a thing. Yet he did. And we know how that turned out for him. 
Great man of faith. And we read of his sermon in Acts chapter 2, following which we see 3,000 souls are converted and come to the Lord. Don't ever think that you have fallen so far that the Lord can't forgive you. God's grace has given us now. We think about God's grace. God's grace has never forgiven willful disobedience. Never has. But what God's grace gives is salvation through a sacrifice which we can never offer. Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10. We could go there and read about that. Gives us that. It gives us time. He's patient with us and He's given us now. We see that in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 as we've been referencing. In Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. By grace we have been saved through faith. And that not of works. But it's the gift of God. His grace has given us now. How will we respond to the Lord tonight? There may be someone here who, who has never become a Christian who needs to take these initial steps of repentance, right? But, but repentance isn't something that, that just happens here on the front row in the church building. And it's not something that just happens one time before you, we take you back and dunk you in the water. That's not when repentance stops. Repentance doesn't stop. Repentance is something that we live out each and every day. And if there is someone here tonight who needs to repent of sins, whether that you need to repent and be baptized, or if you've fallen short again, and you need to repent of your sins, if that's something public, if we can pray for you, we would love to do that. If it's something private, something you need to take care of yourself privately in your life, take the time now during this song. Say a prayer. Pray to the Lord. Ask for His forgiveness. But if we can help you or serve you publicly here, won't you please come forward now while together we stand and sing this song of invitation.